0: Okay, I ask you please stand with me out of reverence to the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Once again, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ this morning the foundational gifts built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ we pray that you would help us all of us to seek to build upon the only foundation Lord not wood hay and stubble that will get burned up we pray that you'd help us to stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ his life his death his resurrection his ascension Lord, all of us, for our salvation, all of it for our salvation, for the glory of your name, and for the building of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I read something the other day uh, about a, a community in London that's up in arms because a musician was turning the famous recording studio called The Church into an apartment complex, The residents really liked having this this famous recording studio in their neighborhood and they didn't want this other musician to to get rid of that that heritage. Bob Dylan and other famous musicians had recorded at at this studio. But the question I have for you is what, what do you think the church recording studio was before it became a recording studio? It was a church. It was a church. And the question that came to mind was were the residents up in arms about a church becoming a recording studio. They're upset about a recording studio becoming apartments, but you think they really cared about a church becoming a recording studio. Probably not. It really shows that how our, our culture has just so forgotten the importance of the local church. Now, what really should have happened is, the, is these Residents should have come to faith and and themselves gone to church, and they should have been up in arms about the circumstances that led to that church closing its doors. And I see, I remember when I was living in Toronto, there was a a church that had become a nightclub. I mean, again, the building is is just a building, but we think about the circumstances that leads to a church closing its doors, and it's usually not good. It's heartbreaking when a church Closes doors, and, and and most often, though not always, it happens because, because of the theological foundation of the church has been undermined, and at some point, it ceases to function as a true church, and then it ceases to be a true church. The Lord removes his lampstand, as he warned the church in Ephesus in Revelation two four and five, where where the the, the The Lord, the Spirit said to the churches, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Removing the lampstand means it ceases to be a church because the Lord takes his presence away from this church. Local churches come and go. But the universal, or we could say the church invisible, is built to last. The invisible church is the church that is is made up of real Christians from many different denominations, from all over the world and throughout history. And it's, it's called the invisible church because you don't know where its boundaries exist. At least physically. But the visible church, on the other hand, is those who go to church on Sunday, those who claim to be Christians. But there are many who are in the visible church we are not really part of the invisible church. What happens when, when churches become filled with, with tares, with weeds, they, they, the churches be, cease to be churches because there's no Christians there. It's, it's, it doesn't cease, it doesn't continue to be a church. So the, the the true church, the invisible church, is built to last. It's built to last. In fact, the true church is the only thing that is going to survive. Do you understand that? The true church is the only thing that is going to survive the return of the Lord. Everything else is going to get burned up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul talks about, according to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care that how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day the day of the Lord will disclose it because it's revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work has been done. If the work has been built on the foundation survives, the foundation of Christ, then he will receive his reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, is that the only true church is that which is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. People try to build churches on all sorts of things that are not the foundation. And time will tell. The day of the Lord will reveal the reality of the church. You see, Jesus Christ ensured that the church would survive because he built the church on himself. He is the head of the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, this is one of the most important passages in the Gospels, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. So when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there are some Romanists would claim that the foundation is Peter, who was the first pope. There is no biblical evidence for this. The, the, the foundation is not Peter. The foundation is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. This is the church. And any church that is not built on who Christ really is and what Christ really came to do cannot be called a true church. As Christ has laid the foundation, he sent out the apostles to proclaim him as the foundation. And so we think about the, the apostles as being foundational and, and Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 speaks about the apostles and the prophets. Now in this is the apostles and the prophets refers to the word of God which truly proclaims who Christ is and what Christ came to do. Not just in the New Testament but throughout the entire Bible. This is the foundation this is the foundation. And to that, the Apostle Paul here includes evangelists, the other, the third foundational gift or or foundational office. I'm going to talk this morning about what each one of those is. But in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, the Apostle Paul explains that the church is to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. That, that, That Christ has given to each one, each member of the true church, gifts of grace, spiritual gifts of grace by the Holy Spirit to do what He has called us to do in the church. You, if you are a Christian, have been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ and to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. So the Word of God, as foundational, is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient guide for us in this. God gave offices to the church to ensure that the foundation was solid. And again, verse 11 identifies these offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, Shepherds and teachers. These have been given to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ so that each part of the body builds itself up in love. Now, Christ calls men and it's and women as well to specific offices in the church and then gives power for the performance of their duties. When it comes to these offices that we're speaking of here, these these are the the sometimes referred to as the extraordinary offices of the apostle and prophet and evangelist. These were given specifically for men for a specific time and a specific purpose. They, these powers or duties are, are defined are divided into extraordinary, as I just mentioned, and ordinary powers and duties. Again, extraordinary duties and, and offices were those were given to specific men and in the foundation of the church, but the ordinary are the the more widespread and they continue to this day. Okay, so extraordinary and ordinary. Doesn't mean that it's ordinary in the sense of of ho-hum. These are glorious gifts as we'll we'll see this morning and and on for the coming weeks. The extraordinary powers and duties that were in the offices of the apostle and the prophet and the evangelists. And then we'll continue, we'll look at this next week, the ordinary are, she- or next time rather, shepherds and teachers. My dad has a maxim that says that, that work expand, expands to fill the space allotted to it. So this is the, the sermon series. that keeps growing. So we, this morning we're going to look at, uh, specifically, at apostles, prophets, and evangelists. And then next time, so in two weeks' time after the camp, Lord willing, we'll be looking at shepherds and teachers. And again, the the apostles and the prophets and the and the evangelists are, are the specific foundation, and then the pastors and teachers, the shepherds and teachers build upon that foundation. Okay? But the, so there's still foundational in the sense that it's all founded and grounded on the Word of God. But before we dive in here, I, I want to, to include two other important considerations. First, I want to, to briefly explain my position. On the extraordinary gifts in general. So that includes certainly the, the uh, offices of, of apostle and, and prophet and evangelist. But when we speak of, of extraordinary gifts, I would also it would also include in that would be would be the, the, um, the, the so-called sign gifts of, of tongues and miracles and healing. And we'll we'll deal with, the, with those latter three in, in the coming weeks. But I'll explain it like this. Theologically, I'm a continuationist. Theologically, I'm a continuationist, but practically, I'm a cessationist. Okay, Theologically, a continuationist. Theologically, I believe that, the, that there is a place for the, the gifts and the offices to continue. I do not see a place in Scripture, because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, I do not believe that the, the Scriptures close the door, finally, to these offices and gifts. Okay, but practically speaking, I'm a, a cessationist and that I, I believe that the gifts have ceased in the sense of the practices of the so-called charismatic churches today. I do not believe that the practices of the so-called charismatic church today constitute a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. I believe these are man-made delusions at best, and in some cases, they're actually demonic counterfeits. Now, I resonate with John Calvin on this. He taught specifically that the offices of the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist have ceased. And that only the offices of pastor and teacher are perpetual. But he's also a continuationist in that practically he leaves the door open for the possibility of their renewal under particular circumstances. He says that in, in his commentary in Ephesians 4.11, it deserves attention also that the fi- of the five offices which are here enumerated, not more than the last two are intended to be perpetual. So the pastors or shepherds and teachers are perpetual. The others are not, he says. Apostles, apostles evangelists, and prophets were bestowed on the church for a limited time only, now hear this, except in those cases where religion has fallen into decay, The evangelists are raised up in an extraordinary manner to restore the pure doctrine which has been lost, but without pastors and teachers, there can be no government of the church. Similarly, in his Institutes, he suggests the possibility of their continuance, saying that of these last two, shepherds and teachers, have ordinary office in the church. The Lord raised up the first three at the beginning of his kingdom and now and again revives them as as the need of the times demands. We're going to be spending more time on on this the next time we, we, we cover this. But but if you have questions on continuation versus continu- continuation versus cessation, I'll, 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 please don't hesitate to come and talk to me about it. But That's the first consideration. Second, the second consideration is even though the formal offices of apostle, prophet, and evangelist have ceased, and again I'll explain why as we go along, there there are some duties of apostles and prophets and evangelists that continue in the ordinary sense, though not as offices. Okay, The offices of apostle and prophet and evangelist no longer exist. They have fulfilled their function. The, the foundation has been laid, so do not need to relay the foundation. But some of these duties do continue, as we'll see. And particularly in the issue, in the way of the evangelist, there there is a power that that continues there as well. So with with these things in mind, let's briefly examine the extraordinary offices. Okay, These, these foundational offices. John Owen lists four qualities of an extraordinary office or officer. One, an extraordinary call unto an office such as none other has or can have by virtue of any law, order, or constitution, whatever. So in other words, that this was a specific time. Okay? or An extraordinary power communicated unto persons so-called, enabling them to act what they are so-called unto, wherein the essence of any office they do consist. Okay? So it's, it, there's a power that's attended with these offices. Extraordinary gifts for the discharge and, or sorry, exercise and discharge of this power. So there's, there's gifts attended to that power in these duties. And then fourth, extraordinary employment as to its extent and measure requiring extraordinary extraordinary labor, work, zeal, and self-denial. He says, all these do and must concur in that office unto unto those offices which we call extraordinary. Thus it was with the apostles, prophets, and evangelists at the first, there were well, all all extraordinary teaching officers in the church and all that ever were so. So then just to, to, to summarize this. As offices as formal offices, they have ceased. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists. I think a lot of the errors that that come in in the the charismatic churches come from the sense of an ongoing office of an apostle. Now, Scripture does not fully close the door to those things at some point in the future being rekindled, I believe. But at this point, when we measure things by the Word of God, what is being presented as these, these offices cannot be described accurately as these offices. Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's, let's look at these three extraordinary ordinary gifts or these three extraordinary offices that Christ has given to the church through the Holy Spirit. First of all, Apostles. In our studies of the gospel according to Luke, we saw Luke repeatedly use the word apostles to refer specifically to the 12 who had been chosen by Christ to learn from him and to spread the message of the gospel after his departure. And we know that that one of their number, Judas, was chosen for an entirely different purpose. Luke uses the word apostle and the word disciple pretty much interchangeably. But he also uses the word disciple more broadly to speak to the, the larger group of followers of Jesus. Now, a disciple means, means student or learner, whereas apostle means emissary or messenger or one who is sent out. They are Christ's authorized representatives after his ascension back to the Father's right hand. Christ has chosen them, and Christ has sent them out. These are the, the apostles. And narrowly refers to the, the, the 12 or the, the 11. And then, as we'll see in a moment, the, the replacement, uh, Matthias, who was chosen by, well, by the Holy Spirit, but through the attendance of the apostles at the end of, of, um, of Luke, of Acts 1. But the Greek word apostolos originally in classical Greek referred to a naval expedition. But gradually, it came to mean one who was sent out, or a messenger. And eventually, it came to refer to the office of the apostle. Sometimes, Scripture still refers to to, to apostles as those who are sent out. So even though Titus is not formally an apostle, he, in uh, 2 Corinthians 8.23 and and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25, are referred to in our English Bibles as messengers, but the Greek word there is apostolos. Apostola. And even Jesus is referred to as the apostle of our confession in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. So now in this sense, this word is, is referred to, it means to refer to, it's to, a to, to description of what they're doing. It is, not a, it is not a title. It's not the office of apostle in the sense of Ephesians 4.11. So perhaps you could refer to them as, as capital A apostles, okay, those who are formal, formerly in the office, and small a apostles. In the same way, a, a deacon can refer simply to a servant, or a deacon can refer to a ministerial office. We're all called to be deacons. We're all called to be servants, but, but certain individuals are recognized by the church as deacons. Similarly, people are are sent out from the church as missionaries and evangelists, but they're not properly called apostles in the sense or or as evangelists in the sense of the office. Now, the apostles are Christ's gift to the church. They served the universal church and that they provided the foundation of the church through their teaching. The apostles serve you and me. In their faithful testimony to the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Christ. They serve us by providing the foundation for us. They were personally discipled by Christ and sent out by Christ to bear witness of him and to his teaching. Revelations 12, 14 refers directly to the apostles as foundational. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this refers specifically to the, the 12 apostles. The most important qualification for an apostle is the direct commissioning by Christ. You can see this repeatedly in the Gospels. But one of the, the most notable times is that this takes place, we looked at it not long ago in Matthew 24, verses 44 to 49. Let's just turn there for a moment. Matthew, sorry, Luke 24, 44 to 49. Just almost at the very end of Luke's gospel account. So notice here again that in uh, verses 44 to 46, that these apostles were taught personally by Christ. Especially in verse 46, concerning his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And then in verse 47 Christ commissions them to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins as personal witnesses. And then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from the Father's pro- the Father's promise of power from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promises it again in Acts But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And we see the fulfillment of that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts 1 verses 21 and 22, as I alluded to earlier, Judas betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And so the remaining apostles came together to choose his replacement or to let the Lord choose his replacement. And, and so in this, they, they helpfully list the criteria. Verse 21. Some So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he's taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so notice the two qualifications here. Taught personally by Christ, specifically since the beginning of his ministry at his baptism. And second, personal witness to the resurrected Christ. Now we also see these, we're going to see these other qualifications repeatedly in Acts of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, Acts 2.43. Okay, so then the, the qualifications of the apostle are the personal commissioning by Christ, personal witness to the resurrected Christ, personal instruction from Jesus Christ, and personal performance of miracles. Those four qualifications of the apostle. Now, this was a very limited group of men, but it extended beyond those initial 12 chosen by Jesus. For example, the apostle Paul repeatedly refers to himself as an apostle. In fact, that's who he begins in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ, by Jesus, sorry, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But then the question comes, it's like, well, if he wasn't there during the entire ministry of Christ, as they said here in Acts 1, how can Paul be an apostle? Again, okay, we just saw in, Acts, in Ephesians 1.1 1, 1, that, that Paul was personally commissioned by Christ. Now, when we get to Acts chapter 9, in our study of Acts coming up, we'll we'll look closely at the, the testimony of his conversion and his call on the Damascus, Damascus Road. Here also was a witness to the resurrection. But here also, not just the resurrected, but the glorified Christ. Even though Paul was not with the others since the baptism of Jesus, he was taught directly by Jesus Christ. We see this repeatedly in the scriptures, but most clearly in Galatians 1, 11, 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not I did not receive it by any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ directly and personally taught the Apostle Paul. Paul also performed many miracles. He bears witness of this in 2 Corinthians 2, 12. Oh, sorry, 12-12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, so again, this bears testimony to the, the qualification of an apostle of, of, of bearing witness through miracles. Now, friends, please hear me on this. This is not the, the supposed healings that you will see in Bethel Church. These are fake healings. These men and women are charlatans. They are deceiving people. There there is no case of anybody from this movement who has literally caused someone's leg to grow back or a truly blind person to receive their sight or or somebody coming back from the dead. In fact, I remember a few years ago when when Bill Johnson was claiming that the daughter of of one of their, their music leaders, Was going to come back from the dead. He was declaring as a prophet that that this little girl was gonna gonna be raised from the dead. Well, that little girl was not raised from the dead. This is spiritual abuse. Abuse to the family who were not able to grieve the death of their daughter and the the bilking of, of their followers from hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is shameful. This is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not. It's a charade. It's a lie. It's a deception. Many men in the visible church today, especially in Pentecostal circles, still call themselves apostles. Great damage. Has been done by these men as they claim to exercise unique authority in the lives of other believers. Now, if these men were truly apostles, not only would they would they have the qualifications they don't have any of them, but they'd also be doing the work of an apostle. They would be proclaiming the, the the message of Jesus Christ, of his substitutionary death. But but these these men have, have been. Under the influence of this, these men they'll they'll they will they will tell you, "Oh, God is gonna, God's telling me that He's going to do amazing things through your life." It's deception. Now, in some cases, I think many of the cases, these probably these men are, are probably self-deceived. There are no more capital A apostles. It is dangerous and unbiblical for these men to claim the title, even of small a apostle. Now it's true that men can exercise some of the duties of an apostle. They can be sent out. They can bear witness of Christ, but they cannot properly be called apostles because they do not have any of the qualifications of the apostles. Now another function of at least some of the apostles was writing scripture. They wrote scripture, and they, or they were used as direct sources for others, like Luke, who were not apostles, but wrote scripture under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, as he guided them through the entire process of, of verbal plenary inspiration. So that takes us to prophets. Prophets, in the sense that Paul means here, wrote the Word of God. They wrote the Word of God, and that includes the prophets who wrote the New Testament, apostolic and otherwise. As I just mentioned, Luke was not an apostle, but he wrote Scripture. Now, Luke was a prophet in the sense that he recorded the very words of God. As we will see, he was also an evangelist in the sense that he wrote his gospel account. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now there's a distinction when when Peter refers to to no prophecy of Scripture. The prophecy of Scripture is on a completely different level in that it is inerrant and authoritative. There were other prophets in the New Testament, perhaps you could say small p prophets, who who did not write Scripture. 1 Corinthians Eleven, four, 4, and 5, Paul speaks of, of women who prophesy, but clearly they do not hold the office of the prophet. We also have the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21, 9. And we have Agabus who, who prophesied that Paul would be bound by the Jews at Jerusalem. Again, this is, these are extra-biblical prophecies and they were not considered to be on par with the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, Paul tells the Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to the good. Now, this can't refer to Scripture. These prophecies can't refer to Scripture because despising Scripture would have received a much stronger admonition. Furthermore, they're to test everything in accordance with God's Word. God's Word is the measure of these prophecies so that the prophecies of Scripture are on a completely another level. Scripture alone is sufficient and authoritative for testing everything. Similarly Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that two or three prophets speak and that the others weigh what is said. If what they're saying is on par with Scripture, there's no need to test it. Again, Scripture is the measure by which these prophecies are measured. And Scripture, the scriptural foundation, has been laid. You cannot build upon the foundation. The canon of the 66 books of Scripture has been closed. So then what is prophecy today? Well, there are those in in contradiction to the the passage I just mentioned who who put modern prophecy on par with or practically above God's Word few years ago, I had a a discussion with a neighbor about concerns that I had with with women teaching men in his church. It was was a friendly discussion at at Tim Hortons over coffee. But I I walked him through some some key scriptures on the subject. And I left him with a a small book called 50 Crucial Questions on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It identifies clearly that men and women are, are equal, but they have different roles. Equal in terms of, of co-heirs of salvation, but they have, men and women have different roles. And so he, he listened to what I said and, and looked at the book, but rejected everything that I said. And because and his rationale was, the Spirit says otherwise. Just think about that for a moment. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is saying something that contradicts Scripture. That is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Now I know those are harsh words, and and I didn't I didn't phrase it exactly like that to him, but I expressed my, my very deep and sincere concern that he was, was putting the, the words of so-called prophets above the word of God. And this is happening all the time in charismatic circles. And it's leading people to hell. Now I'm not saying that that all charismatics are going to hell. I know some very sincere and 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 faithful followers of Christ, true Christians in charismatic churches. I'm talking about this this doctrine that that is setting these so-called prophecies above the word of God. And a contradistinction to the word of God. Very serious. I'll say this again. What is taking place, not just in Bethel, but what is taking place in this city under the banner of prophecy Is not prophecy in the sense of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. It's not. Almost all so called prophecy that takes place, and I have to say almost because I can't guarantee that it's all off, but almost all so called prophecy that takes place in churches today is not a work of the Holy Spirit. And how can I say that? Because it does not line up with Scripture. We'll talk a lot more about that going forwards in a couple weeks. I've heard of a, of a young man approaching a woman saying, God told me that we're going to get married. To which she replied, well, he never told me. You was know, a famous example of a, of a, a, a young man who, who went to, to Spurgeon and said to Spurgeon, God told me that I'm going to preach in the Metro-Tal- Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit next Sunday. Similarly, Spurgeon said, "We well, didn't tell me. These are are subjective opinions and subjective feelings. And when you, you couch it in terms of prophecy, then it's elevated. And then when you deny it or reject it, you're saying, well, don't contradict the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual abuse so often. I can't stress this enough. Scripture alone is sufficient and authoritative now the scriptures don't close the door. We have to test everything according to scripture. If you're going to, if you're going to engage in these things, and I caution you against it, you better be careful. Do not say, "Thus saith the Lord," because what did they do with prophets, false prophets, in the Old Testament? I think if that was, I'm not suggesting that we go back to that practice. But what would happen with these so called prophets if their prophecies did not come true? God speaks through his word. There was a sense in now uh, which in the course of, of preaching that a man can, can powerfully in, in proclamation, not in the sense of, of foretelling, but in a telling of God's word. Can can prophesy in the sense again that's forth telling, the powerful proclamation of God's word. It's, it was commonly called in the in earlier days called unction, where the Holy Spirit moves th- through a mere man to powerly, powerfully convict people of sin. And I believe this is a, a continuation, a sense of, of the, the power of the prophet in the small P sense. You know, in the, like in the excellent, excellent book, the, the art of prophesying. he's talking about the art of the proclamation of God's word. So now with the time remaining, let's, let's look at evangelists. Evangelists in the sense that the Apostle Paul means here in Ephesians 4.11 were those officers who were uniquely gifted in powerful proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. The New Testament identifies Philip and Barnabas and Timothy and John Mark and Titus, Silas, and Luke as evangelists in this in this sense. And notably, John Mark, also called Mark, and Luke, wrote their gospel accounts as evangelists through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were in the, the office of the evangelist in this sense. And although they were, they were primarily, although Evangelists, in this sense, in this, they were primarily concerned with sharing the gospel with unbelievers. They also performed a vital purpose in the early church. Timothy, for example, who was exhorted by Paul to do the work of an evangelist, even though his ministry primarily took place in the context of the local church 2 Timothy 4.5, 5. He was told to do the work of an evangelist. Christians needed and need. To hear the gospel every bit as much as unbelievers. So, evangelists, in the sense of the office, had unique qualifications and powers shared by, shared that nobody else has today. Now, we're going to look at a few verses here, but but we need to be careful because these texts that I'm about to talk about are, are descriptive, not prescriptive. They're describing something that takes place, they're not, they're not commanding a practice that will be followed. But, but I think that the repetition, of these descriptive passages gives us a clear picture of the normative practice for these officers in the early church. They were directly appointed by apostles, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. And they also performed miracles. Acts 6.8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We see this also from Philip in, in, a, um, in Acts chapter 8. So then these, these in the office of the evangelists, were, were directly now commissioned by the apostles who have been by, commissioned by Christ, and they performed signs and miracles. So that, that describes the extraordinary office which, as I explained, has ceased. However, in the ordinary sense, right, in the ordinary sense, in the the more widespread sense, that that is not just in the early church, but today, and for, for many, many different believers, the duties and the gifts, in a limited sense, continue. The ordinary gifts and functions of the evangelist still continue. Now, this includes seeking to proclaim the message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, to unbelievers in hopes that the Spirit will generate hearts, but it's also confident that the Word will accomplish that for which it's sent, Isaiah 55, 10, 11, even if that means a hardening and a greater accountability for judgment. This might include missionary endeavors, local and further afield. However, it also includes the proclamation of the gospel in the local church. The the gift of, of of evangelism, in a sense, small e, still continues in the church. There, there are those, and and you can think of people in this church who are, are really, uniquely gifted by God, to bring the gospel to bear on your life as a believer. The people who who they, they, they will, skillfully, help to help to to, interpret your life and, and what's going on in your life through the lens of the gospel to remind you and to help you to do that. These are those who, who have, in the small e sense, the gift of evangelism. Again, not the office that's ceased, but the ongoing gift. Now, we are all called to evangelize, right? Every, every Christian is called to be an evangelist, but some are, are uniquely gifted in this. And, and again, it's, it's not that that we're all going to be out on the, on the street corner preaching the gospel. Street preaching is scary. But, but some of us can, can go and share the gospel in the park, and, and I'm really hoping after our next men's prayer box, we'll, we'll be going to do that. We can, we can also, some of us, all of us, can share the gospel with our neighbor over the back fence or a coworker or a friend or a family member. And as I said, including sharing the gospel with each other in the local church. All of us need to be evangelists. But I encourage you to, to test it out to see your gifts, to say, to, to, to explore whether you actually have this this gift as an evangelist to, to to be used of God in this way. And if you're if you're not sure about this, again, I, w- I would encourage you, please, please come in and have a chat with with myself or Joshua will be more than happy to, to help you explore that and. and and better yet, come with us when we go out. We would help, be happy to help you to explore this and to, and to walk in these gifts for the glory of God. And remember, probably the, the most gifted evangelist that I know, and, and I've talked about it before, he's been here before, Paul McDonald, who came and did our camp a number of years ago on evangelism. And he was actually hired by a local church in, in Toronto as, as an evangelist. I wasn't in the, in the formal office of an evangelist, but he was, was hired to do, <clears throat> to do evangelism on the streets of Toronto. When we were in seminary together, we would, we would go with a group and, and he would go in, and preach, preach at Speaker's Corner and we would go down and support him um, in that and, and, and help him in, in what he was doing. So I think Paul is, is, is gifted as an ev- evangelist and I, I, and I really believe that some among us here are gifted as evangelists and I would encourage you to explore the possibility that you would be gifted as in an or as an ordinary evangelist if I can use that word So would you pray with me that we would all grow in our service? would you, would you pray with me that we would would all be built clearly on the foundation of, of Christ grounded in the in the Word of God and in the gospel, and that we would all, all of us, grow in the, the gifting that God, that God has given us. Would you pray with me in that? Would you make a commitment to, to, to let's seize the church? Let's see what God does through this little church tucked away in the neighborhood. To see what, what God can do in us and through us for the building of His church. And I said we 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 all need to be reminded of the gospel. We all need to be reminded of of Christ's vicarious life and death. That He lived the the righteous life that that we could never live. That that He fully obeyed all of God's commands. and Particularly as as it pertains to us. The moral commands. Summed up in loving the Lord as God with all His heart, soul, mind and strength. And loving His neighbor as Himself. We've never done that. But Christ has done that. We need to remember this. We need to remember that that He died as a lawbreaker. He died as one who has broken all the commandments. He died as in your place as you have broken all the commandments. He was raised on the third day, victorious over sin, over your sin, over Satan for the world, for hell. He was raised from the grave. It was impossible for death to hold him. He's now ascended to the Father's right hand and he's interceding for you and me at this very moment. He is the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and he is interceding for the church. You and I need to be reminded of that. And we're about to be reminded of that. We're about to be reminded of the the. I guess the Lord's Supper is an evangelist. And so may all of us consider, as we consider who we are in this world, may we consider what God has called us to do. May we consider that we do not own ourselves, but we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. That you now belong to Him, and that you now belong to His church to give good, to, to do the, the good works that He's prepared in advance for you to walk in, to exercise the gifts that he has given you for the building up of the body for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the glorious gospel, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid the debt that we could never pay and lived the life that we could never live. And we praise you that the reigning and ruling Christ has has given gifts to the church for the building up of the body, for the glory of the name of God. So we pray that you would help us all. Forgive us, I pray, for our failure to love others and exercising the gifts, failing to exercise the gifts that, that you have given us. Help us, I pray, to grow in the use of the gifts for the building up of this local body. May you cause this Little church to stand firm all the way until you return as you build this church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.